Well, greetings, church. Good morning. Good morning on this rainy day. Hey, I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to James chapter 5 today. And in a minute, we'll take a look at verses 7 through 12. James 5, verses 7 through 12. Now, I'd like to think in my time with you, I've lived a life that's pretty transparent. And so you shouldn't be surprised when I pull up an axe, you know, and use this for a sermon illustration, right? I mean, I mean, it seems fitting, right? I mean, I have dabbled with weapons, uh, used them, and also have made them. And one of the things I find fascinating about metallurgy and the art of tempering steel is just how precise it can be to make phenomenal weapons. Now, I had the privilege to hire someone who's pretty famous in the bladesmithing world, uh, Daniel Winkler. Some of you old-timers might know him as the guy that made all the weapons in Last of the Mohicans. And so all those authentic weapons back in the day in that movie, Daniel Winkler made. So we latched onto him and the SEAL teams, and we asked him to make us custom axes and knives. And he did just that. And it's a phenomenal thing when you think about Taking a piece of steel and then using metallurgy where you actually heat the steel and as a skilled blacksmith, you know when to quench it. So quenching it, figure this. You got this steel that's hot and you shaped it, but you want to cool it quickly. Some of my friends that are extremely good at blacksmithing will even do like motor oil and they'll lay it in magnetic north because they want the steel to quench even true to north to make it more resilient and more subtle. But if all you do is quench the steel from this rapid heating and cooling it down, it leaves it bitter. And it leaves it to where it could be so brittle and bitter that it will break. And so you have to do another heat treat called tempering. This is where you heat it slower and a lower temperature so that's more resilient, so that it can handle stress and that it can also maintain an edge. And so to me, as I think about knife making, metallurgy, and all the processes that go into it, I can't help but think about the Word of God and what we're going to study today. Because the Word of God also tempers us, right? With all the experiences we go through, and it teaches us, and it leads us. And so I want to share a couple things that I think are going to be applicable to our lives before we hit to the text. And so, for instance, when you think about heating and quenching still, I think about times of trouble. Every child of God has gone through times of trouble, right? I'm looking at people, I've got to sit with you, I've got to hear you going through times of trouble, and you certainly know I have gone through times of trouble. And so that is kind of that initial quenching where God is shaping our character and forming us to be that weapon that he can use on the battlefield. Because believe it or not, as followers of Christ, you are on a battlefield. You are declared and you have a known enemy and he hates you. And so we want to be in the master's hands and we want to allow him to shape us. Now that's where the tempering comes in. That's the spiritual growth and the maturity that we go through. And it takes time, doesn't it? And to be honest, it's painful. That tempering process, it is not one and done. And it is a slow process. And so this, excuse me, this sanctification journey that we're on, it's hard, right? But it makes it more and more like Jesus Christ. I'm reminded of Romans 5 also where God reminds us in verses 3 through 4 that it's going to produce perseverance, character, and hope. And then the resulting strength and resilience is what's going to happen after this tempering. Uh, we're going to 
have a faith that is strong and it's going to be able to deal with the challenges of life because we've gone through these things. And then in turn, we're going to be like those warriors in Ephesians 6 where they put on the whole armor of God because they have gone through this preparation. And then let's not discount the fact that we have a blacksmith called the creator, right? The holy God of the universe. And he knows what he's doing. And so rather than lamenting when we're on the anvil, when we're being shaped, because it hurts, we need to remember whose hands we're in as he's working on us and shaping us to be more and more like Jesus Christ. We need to learn to rest in the master's hands. And then at a certain point, we have this unique privilege where not only do we get worked on by the master's hands, but sometimes we actually get to be put in the master's hands and he works in and through us to help others. Isn't that cool? What a privilege to be able to be used by God to actually help shape other people to be more like God. And so when I think about all this and I think about this little ax that I asked him to make for us, it has purposes, believe it or not. And uh, it's a little easier to carry than a full-blown giant tomahawk. But each piece, each person, God is uniquely shaped for a unique purpose. Just like I can look at this ax and I can see certain purposes for each part that was made, I can look at each one of you, and as I listen to your story and what you've gone through, right, the tempering and how God's prepared you, I can see how God can take your past hurts and use them for present-day helps, how you can actually minister to others. Now, none of us are excited when we go through these troubling times so that one day we can be helpful for someone else, right? Like we're all giddy inside, like, oh, I can't wait to go through tragedy so I can be helpful for somebody else. At least I don't. And so the process of tempering and going through all of this serves as a powerful metaphor for our Christian journey to be more and more like Jesus Christ, to have strong and flexible faith, capable of enduring life's challenges, and maintain a loving and compassionate heart. All of this takes time. And so when I, again, think of all these master bladesmiths and how much time they spend in it, and that's where I also kind of crack up when I see people, they're like, oh my goodness, they're charging $400 for that ax or that knife. I'm like, do you realize a master blacksmith spent 100 hours shaping and making that weapon or that tool? And so think about how God's invested in you and how he shaped you for your purpose. And so today we're going to look at some things and learn about how the master's hands can shape us. But I want to remind you that being in the master's hands and as he works in us and shapes us is more like a mountaintop experience in my opinion. Now I've talked about this before, but mountaintops are wonderful, right? They're beautiful. There's incredible views, but I've climbed a lot of mountains around the world. And you know, what's interesting about all of them on top? is nothing grows up there. There's nothing up there. It's a beautiful view. It's amazing. But there's nothing alive up there. Where does the growth take place? It's in those valleys, right? I've carried my skis up mountains before and started in like a jungle floor, you know, where it's just tropical and hot and you're working your way through all that underbrush and the growth just to get that one glimpse of that view so you can ski down that mountain. And so that's a lot like what we're going through in our life. And so at some point, even though we get these wonderful mountaintop experiences, we have to dive back into the valley. And that's why I'm so thankful for our text today in James. James, guided by the Holy Spirit, gives us some help for our topic today. Specifically, he helps us and guides us on how to have patience during times of trouble. 
In our text, we're going to meet four characters today, and we're also going to learn about four commands. Two are positive and two are negative. And then we'll end our time today, and I'm going to give you four calls to action. Our title today is How to Have Patience During Times of Trouble, and our text is James 5, 7 through 12. Let's listen to the Word of God now. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruits of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and the late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remain steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. But above all, my brothers, do not swear, either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but let your yes be yes and your no be no, so that you may not fall under condemnation. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come before you with open hearts and minds, ready to receive your word. And as we explore James, we ask for your guidance and wisdom. Help us to understand the depth of your teaching on patience, endurance, and waiting. May your Holy Spirit work within us, teaching us to wait with purpose, to strengthen our faith amidst trials, and to live with honesty and transparency in all our dealings. Illuminate our minds, Father, and spirits with your truth, and help us to apply these lessons in our daily walk with you. We thank you for your compassion and mercy. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. And the church said, Amen. All right. So if you heard last week's message, James was tightening up the wicked rich. Now, that doesn't mean everybody that's rich is wicked. But he was specifically addressing wicked people that were oppressing the poor. And so today he shifts his focus from the persecutors to the persecuted. And so he's actually addressing the poor and he's actually coaching them. So when you hear this text, realize he's talking to a people that are really frustrated and want to have some vengeance, right? And he's saying right out of the gate, be patient. And so that is the first command we're going to look at today. Be patient. Here James gives us the first key to surviving times and trouble. Be patient. Now one definition of patient is enduring pain or difficulty with calmness. It's a lot easier to say than to live out, isn't it? As an example, and I pondered with uh, great pondering skills there, Chris, on whether or not I would dive into these waters, but some of us fellows have maybe heard the song, Waiting on a Woman, right? Okay, only me. I'll explain it. <laughs> so imagine a scenario where you have a wonderful woman in your life. I have such a woman. And January will be 38 years where I've learned to wait on this wonderful woman. Now, in the military, I was learned 15 minutes early is late. And so I've been hardwired for a long time in my life to be punctual. So God thought he would shape me and work on me a little bit by giving me a woman who has a more relaxed definition of time. <laughs> and I say this knowing my bride is watching online right now. But... There's safety and distance, right? But you know I got to drive home. <laughs> but here's the deal. That waiting, as much as when I was younger, would drive me nuts, it doesn't really bother me today. Today I know it's worth the wait. I know my girl wants to get ready. She wants to look as cute as possible. And she will fret about her clothes like a lot of other ladies. 
And believe it or not, in our house, when we come home from church, like a lot of other homes, there might be several outfits laid out that didn't make the cut before she goes to church. And I see a lot of ladies nodding north and south, right? And so that's real life. But I've also learned that sometimes you got to make compromises on this waiting, right? And so that's why we drive separately so that I can be on time to church and my wife can show up when she's ready, right? And I love my wife. But this waiting is a big deal because every one of us go through it, don't we? We wait on different things. Sometimes it's positive and silly like what I just mentioned. And other times it's a very serious matters. Another visual is this ideal from the original language. And again, they didn't have explosives, but it's this ideal of a long fuse. So think of a long fuse attached to a heart, right? When I do premarital counseling and even in the wedding vows, I remind the couple that they will do well if they have a very long fuse, right? Because a long fuse allows you to have a do-over, right? If you have a short fuse and you blow up, at the ones you love, there's no takebacks, right? We learned that in James 3. Once you speak those words, they're really hard to get back. And so having a long fuse and seeing your spouse or other people around you as more significant than you will allow you to really uh, be able to not speak those words that will do life-lasting damage. So it's so important. And then James provides us with a great visual with introducing one of our first of our four characters, and that is the farmer. Now, notice I didn't say gardener. Years ago, I met a man, and he was said when he retired, he's going to go into farming. And I said, I, I think you mean gardening, because I've met some farmers, and they work really hard, and they rarely sleep. And so gardening is one thing, but farming is another. And farming is extremely hard work. And farmers... In biblical times, and even in today, they really rely on two significant rains. One in the fall to help prepare the soil to plant the seeds, and then one in the spring to help really initiate that growth after everything that's been going on in the ground during the winter. And so these rains are important, but what control does the farmer have over the rains? He doesn't have any, right? He has to wait, and he has to pray. So God purposely put his people in a situation where they needed to depend upon him for this life-giving water. Consider Deuteronomy 11, starting verse 10. For the land that you are entering to take possession of is not the land of Egypt from which you have come, where you sowed your seed and irrigated it like a garden of vegetables. But the land in which you are going over to possess is a land of hills and valleys, which drinks water by the rain from heaven a land that your Lord, your God cares for. The eyes of the Lord, your God are always upon it from the beginning of the year to the end of the year. So instead of relying on the Nile, like where they had come from, they now have to rely on God to give these life-giving rains. I remember hearing a story one time about a farming community that was going through a drought and there was a lot of stress and they decided, you know what? Let's try something that we haven't tried, and it's called prayer. So they invited everyone to the downtown, and they all gathered around. And off to the side was one person who knew how to pray with expectancy in his heart. You see, there was a little boy there, and at this prayer gathering for rain, he showed up with an umbrella. And he expected the Lord to deliver on that prayer request, right? And so that's what we want to do, right? We want to show up expectedly, thinking that God will answer our prayers. And most of us have learned the value of patience 
but seldom do we pray for it. Why is that? Because patience is an earned virtue. And if you want it, there's a laboratory experience that you're going to have to go through. And if you have prayed for it and you have gone through that experience, you're probably not as apt to pray for it again, right? I prayed for patience once when I was 16. And apparently the Lord is still just delivering good on that promise. He's like, I'm going to keep helping you, young man. I'm going to keep giving you patience, even though you don't pray for it anymore. And so it is one of those things that we go through. And it is costly to acquire and it is painful, but it's so worth it. And we need to learn a lesson from the farmer. You see, a farmer knows what is in and out of his control, right? And so my encouragement to you is deal with the things that you can control and with the things that you can't control, give them to God and trust God to sort it out. We would be wise to remember that God has a way of working out his purposes and plans on the everyday scale as much as the grand cosmic scale too. In these verses, James encourages the persecuted church by reminding them that the Lord will return. This word uh, for coming is a picture of the Lord's presence also for the saints. And there are over 300 verses in the New Testament about Jesus's return. And it's meant to be there to encourage our hearts to stay steadfast and true. It's the hope for every generation of believers. And it is a hope that is worth clinging to. Now, I've also learned that only the Holy Spirit is able to help us endure and go through these times of trouble. For the person without Christ, they will only find frustration on this topic. Only with the Holy Spirit will you be able to rest in the storms of life with that calmness. Yet for the believer, there's a supernatural working that takes place so that we may glorify our Heavenly Father. So let's be patient like the farmers, and like farmers, let's keep working. The second command that's positive is to establish your hearts. You see that in the next verse. The second of the positive commands relates to how we should respond when we are wronged. It's a picture of our inner fortitude. Anyone listening ever been wronged? Yep, right? Anyone ever wanted a little bit of payback for being wronged? Right? For those of you watching online, they are nodding north and south, right? It's a real thing that we all deal with, right? Knowing how prone we are to retaliate in the flesh, we must establish our hearts in advance. But how? How do we strengthen our hearts? How do we establish them? I'd love to tell you it's complicated, but it's not. It's spending daily time in God's word. It's spending time in prayer. It's spending time in fellowship time in your church group, time sharing, time worshiping, time giving, time serving. All these things will help establish your heart. It's a simple recipe. It's kind of like when you go to the doc and they have simple fitness instructions for your physical body, right? And what do they all say? Eat right and exercise. We know what we're supposed to do. It's the doing that's hard, right? It's the way of things. Let me share some hard truth with you also. Some of you today, if you were to do a spiritual exam on your body, might find yourself anemic. Why is that? Because some of you think you can nurture your soul by coming to church once or twice a month. And this is the only feeding that you get from the Word of God. This is the only time that you sit under the Word of God. Now imagine if you were to only eat twice a month. 
you would be anemic physically too, wouldn't you? You'd be falling apart. It'd be hard to maintain that body because you're not taking care of it. You're not feeding it. And so that's why I implore you and I encourage you not only to sit under the Word of God, but to get into the Word of God each and every day for your own life. To spend time in prayer. To spend time with God's people. The reason for this, again, is that many people only feed themselves on Sunday. And it breaks my heart. And so my encouragement to you is by establishing your heart in advance, you establish your foundation so that you can withstand the coming storms. And we all know this, right? You've heard the phrase, you're either in a storm or you've gone through a storm or you just came out of the storm. But it seems like that cycle happens more and more as we get older, right? It just seems like we're cycling in and out of these storms. And so we need to establish our hearts. And one of the best illustrations of this principle is found in the life of Joseph from the book of Genesis. When I was younger, a preacher shared with me that I needed 50-20 vision. And I was like, all right, I'll bite. I don't have any idea what that means. What is 50-20 vision? And he said, well, open your Bible to Genesis chapter 50 and read verse 20. I said, all right, here we go. As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So Joseph, he could have lamented about all the things that was done wrong to him, but instead he had a different type of vision, didn't he? He understood that what they meant for evil, God meant for good. He understood who was shaping him on the anvil. Joseph was able to see beyond the hurt and trust in God. And I'm sure there were moments in the pit and the prison that he had big questions for God, like, where are you? This is a little concerning. I'm not sure why I'm here. Yet he established his heart and trusted in his God. A couple of Memorial Days ago, I think it was actually three, I had some significant health issues and I found myself on my first beach vacation where I rented a beach house and all our grown kids paid their own way. It was amazing. It was cheaper than spending two days in a hotel. And I was like, this is pretty cool. And we were having so much fun. And it helped me take a break from some of the significant health issues that I thought I was going through, including the loss of my right thumb. And it was just one of those weird things where I couldn't button my shirt anymore. I couldn't clip my fingernails. I couldn't do anything with my right thumb. It just stopped working. And so I was like, oh, well, you know, like classic frogman. I was like, oh, well, I got another thumb. I'm good. And eventually, you know, I had a loving wife that said, you should probably go see a doctor. And so we started that process. And then that loving doctor called me while I was on vacation. And he said, hey, I hate to call you while you're away, but I have some news. And I'd really like to see you in the doctor's office tomorrow for you have ALS. And I was like, well, that's kind of sobering. I tell you what, doc, um, I'm going to wait till next week because my wife will kill me quicker than ALS if I leave this vacation right now. So I'm going to stay put and I'll see you next week. So I got to sit with this diagnosis for a couple weeks. And when I eventually got to sit with the doctors, they had, it looked like a, I haven't seen it. I know my daughters watch it, but Grey's Anatomy, it was like all the different doctors, they're all around and they're doing all their different tests. And after hours of being poked and prodded, one doctor finally realized what was wrong with me. He said, you don't have ALS. You have a severed motor nerve. We just need to repair your nerve in your thumb and you'll be fine. That's a big difference. 
And that's a big difference. You might remember the Todd talk I did on operation, right? Where I actually asked to watch the operation. And I just a uh, heads up, if you're into that kind of thing, there's nothing you can see because they got your arms stretched all the way out here. So I didn't even get to see anything. I just got to hear their choice of music. And so that was like kind of lame. And so, <laughs> but when you sit with a diagnosis like that, when you sit with hard things, to me, what I have found is those thorns of suffering that we go through in those times of doubt, a lot of times it's like pinning back the veil with that thorn and you can see God more clearly. Because on the beach, I have to admit, I had about a 30-minute pity party. I did. I went down to the beach after the doctor called me. I didn't talk to my wife. I went down to the beach and proverbially, I was sucking my thumb. I was like, well, that's not how I pictured going out. And I was like, oh, all the crazy things you allow me to do. I didn't see ALS coming. And then I started asking questions. I was like, what would I do differently? What would I do differently right now? Because the Bible tells me in Proverbs 27, 1, not to boast about tomorrow. Because I don't know what a day will bring forth. And so all I know is today is I have a desire to serve the Lord. I want to love my family. I want to love others. I really want to live out Matthew 22 of loving God and loving others. So I don't think I'll change anything. I think I'll drive on until the Lord takes me home. And thankfully, I got a really sweet reprieve and got a, a new thumb instead and uh, didn't have to live with the ALS diagnosis at that time in my life. And so that leads us to our third command, and it's a negative one. It's do not grumble. It's right there in our text. Do not grumble. In verse 9, we read our third command and the first of the negative commands. Here, we learn how to relate to those around us. One of the things I love about this passage is that it applies to all of us. Meaning, who hasn't had issues with patience? I have issues with it all the time. Who hasn't been tempted to complain to others when things don't go their way? There's an amazing place out there in the universe called the military pharmacy. And if you want to see the art of complaining at another level, and I'm seeing steely-eyed veterans that have experienced it, giggling, because it can be quite, quite, a, quite a day. And so my wife and I, sometimes we compare notes on our pharmacy experiences. But there is a group of people that are definitely one-uppers out there. No matter what you can complain about, they can crush you, right? They can bring it and say, oh, yeah? And I'll spare you the list of all the things I've heard. But just know, like, there are levels out there. But the more comical one I heard on the one-uppers of complaining, I remember when I got there and there was an old-timer beside me standing in line. He's like, how long have you been retired, son? I was like, this is my first year. He goes, well, you're nothing but a boot retiree. I was like, a boot retiree, huh? He goes, yeah, you're a new guy. And so I, I realized, like, there's all these levels, right? You get in the military and you're a new guy. And you move to this command, you're a new guy. And you're a new guy. And you're a new guy. Even when you retire, somehow you can be a new guy. You're nothing but a new retiree. So I imagine maybe the first couple thousand years, that's what we'll be in heaven, right? We'll be new guys, right? We'll be all new and fresh and happy there. But here's the deal. When I think about complaining, no one benefits from complaining, do they? It just brings people down. I remember the one thing I tried to establish in my son's heart is I said, be that crazy guy in the military that doesn't complain. You'll stand out. When it's cold, embrace it and love it. Everybody knows it's cold, right? When you go outside, we all know it's cold. And when it's 150 and you drink a water bottle and just oozes out of your body, you know it's hot, right? You don't need to complain about it. Don't be that guy. 
The risk, if we don't establish our hearts and get rid of this complaining attitude, is that we can see ourselves as victims and then end up holding a grudge. This creates fertile ground for the devil to plant in. We also need to learn not to grumble against one another. One of the saddest things to see and experience is when family turns on one another. Now, on a comical note, God has helped us in this area. And every one of us has experienced it. So teenagers, don't feel bad if you think I'm picking on you right now, because we all were teenagers once. But you know what I think God did? He said, I think I'm going to help them create someone in their own image that doesn't believe in them or listen to them. And so he gave us teenagers to raise, right? And so these ornery teenagers, now again, not the ones sitting here today, of course, you guys are precious, but some teenagers are a little rebellious, right? And they don't listen. But then again, looking at all the grownups out there, I realized we were teenagers too, right? And we have some interesting stories that we didn't listen as well. But this happens in our personal family and in our church family, and we unleash our frustrations on those we love the most. And for our eternal family, this is especially sad, isn't it? That we would actually cut down and say harmful things to people we're going to spend eternity with. To me, that's insane. I've seen people quickly vent at the slightest sign of trouble, and James knows this, and that's why every chapter in the book deals with our speech. I won't review all that we've learned, but as a reminder... Your words are powerful, and they have impact for eternity. Now, one of the things that my wife and I have tried to apply in our marriage is how do we use our words? How do I make my wife richer with words and deeds each and every day? And it's not just if you're married, right? This applies to anybody. You all have the ability to make people richer with your words and with your deeds. You can make them richer, but likewise, you can also make them poorer. Sometimes I have made some major withdrawals on my wife's bank account because of something I've said or something I've done. And I've had to ask for forgiveness. And likewise, she's had to do the same with me. And so I would encourage you, remember that our speech is important. The Hebrew prophets, one of our four characters in our text, serve as an example of each of us as well. They dealt with many grumblings and poor treatment, all while speaking the truth of God's word. Consider this short list. Moses dealt with the grumbling of the Israelites for 40 years. David was hunted by Saul. Elijah had to deal with the evil King Ahab and the wicked Jezebel. Jeremiah dealt with the opposition his entire ministry. He didn't see one person come to know the Lord. Ezekiel dealt with the death of his wife during his ministry. Daniel was taken as a youth and thrown into a lion's den. For what? Praying to God. Hosea endured a heartbreaking marriage. John the Baptist was in prison and beheaded. And Hebrews 11 commends many others for their faithfulness. And Hebrews 12 encourages us today in our present day sense. Think about verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Now, I need to give you a caution today. Please don't think that living a life of obedience will lead to a life of ease and pleasure. Nowhere do we see that in God's word. 
Jesus was obedient. And where did that obedience lead him? Led him to the cross, right? I think of John the Baptist. Again, Jesus himself said, no greater man has ever been born of a woman, right? And John was probably like, all right, I'm serving the Lord. I'm in prison. All right, I'm going towards, it looks like a block to have my head chopped off. I'm, I maybe have questions, right? These are real people that lived just a few thousand years ago. Today, we have people that are living and sacrificing themselves for the Lord too. Nowhere in the Bible are we promised a life of leisure. If anything, as believers, we have more trouble because we are declared on the battlefield. We have a uniform. We represent our Lord. We should not be surprised when the enemy attacks us because of who we represent. We wear the uniform of a child of God, and the enemy will take note of this, and they will make every effort to cause us to doubt when it comes to our faith. But that's why I'm so encouraged by Romans 15. Verse 4 says, For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through the endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. And that leads us to another character, Job, and Job's steadfastness. I want you to take a look at Job. Job is the third character in our text. And no topic on suffering would be excluding Job in his life. If you're not familiar with his story, let me give you a simple outline of three sections of Scripture. The first three chapters really picture Job's distress. And then the big portion of this book relays Job's defense in chapters 4 through 37. And then it wraps up in chapters 38 through 42 with Job's deliverance. Now, there are many things we can learn from Job, but to keep us on task, know that Job had questions for God. He questioned him often during the narrative, but he never lost his faith. And God never got on to him for questions. But in the end, Job learned a valuable lesson. That through this conversation, he learned more and more about God. I love what verse 5 says in chapter 42. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Job's story is a reminder that trouble is temporary. It's difficult to remember this when you're going through it. It's another reason why it's so important to have biblical community around you. Our character is formed on the anvil of adversity. Never forget that. When you're going through it, realize God is shaping you to make you more and more like his son. The other night, I was spending some time with the Lord. And I was outside and I was just looking up at all those stars. You know, one of the things amazing about stars is that, and I know I'm not saying anything that you don't know, but they're still up there in the heavens right now. In the daytime, they're there. On those blue sky days, the stars are up there, but you can't see them, can you? You can only see them when they're portrayed on the canvas that's black as night, right? And I often think sometimes when we go through trouble, isn't that when we have the clearest picture of the revelation of our Lord? When we're going through something that we can't explain, when we're brokenhearted, when we're scared, isn't that when the brilliance of the Lord shines even brighter? But if you don't go through those moments, you won't see it and you won't know it. We need to take heart as we endure suffering without grumbling that God will sort it out all one day, either in this life or the life to come. It brings us to our fourth command that's negative here. Do not swear. Try to see if anyone fidgets here. The word swear does not mean bad language. 
But a quick review of chapter 3 will remind you that children of God are not to be using bad language, right? So enough said on that. If you need an extra commentary on it, you can come visit me after the sermon, all right? But this word for swear or mean here, meaning here is an oath. Think about it. In times of trouble, and I was struggling at first when I was reading this passage, I was like, 7 through 11 makes sense, but all of a sudden it feels like this big jump off to, and do not swear. I was like, do not swear. Like, okay, where's this coming from? But think about it. And I've been there, maybe even recently. When you're going through hard things and you're desperate, have you ever found yourself wanting to make some bargains with God? Have you ever thought about, Lord, if you pull me out of this, I promise I will never, ever, ever do this again, right? Or how about that familiar sin that you keep confessing? God, if you forgive me this one more time, I promise I'll never, ever, ever, right? And we start making oaths. That's not what we're supposed to do. <laughs> now, this type of swearing in Jesus' day was out of control. The rabbis in their collected writings called the Mishnah had an entire chapter devoted to oaths. Now, in summary, it was detailed guidance on how to cross your fingers and lie and when not to lie. That was what the whole chapter really was about. It was like, all right, in these situations, it's okay to lie. You can do crossies, right? I mean, that's what the whole chapter is about. And it's kind of ridiculous, right? And what I've come to learn is that the one who swears oaths thinks they control the future. And don't we all want to control the future? At least in our finite minds, we think so. What I've also come to know is that those who wait are not able to control the future. And it creates a posture of submission. It creates a heart that submits and waits upon the Lord. To wait is to trust God to make things right. To swear an oath is to trust yourself to make things right. In the end, God's word is telling us to let your yes be yes and let your no be no. In our time together, we've learned four commands and we've seen three of the four characters. The last character is a little more subtle in our text, but he's there four times. Brothers, that's every child of God, both then and today. Every child of God is in this story, and each of us are called to have patience during times of trouble. This is only possible if you have the Holy Spirit. And I've shared this before, and some of you know it well, but oftentimes your best witness is in your worst circumstance. Your patience in times of suffering will be on display for the world to see, and it will be a testimony to those around you. If you're here today and you're exploring Christianity, I want to let you know that God loves you. He cares so much about you. The Bible makes it clear that he wants to have a relationship with you. The Bible also makes it very clear that we have all sinned and we've walked away from God. We've all shaken our fist at him. We all want to be in control. And until we come to the end of ourselves and we realize how lost we are, and then we realize we can't earn our way to heaven, not even with good deeds, are we ready to hear the gospel? But if that's where you're at today, you find yourself frustrated because you are in times of trouble and you have nowhere to run and nowhere to look, I want to invite you to turn to Jesus. You see, Jesus lived that perfect life and he died in your place and he died in mine. God didn't leave him dead though. He raised him from the dead. And today Jesus is alive and he sits on that throne as we learned in Hebrews 12. And he stands ready to forgive you, to restore you, and to make your life whole. Now, as I said, does that mean your life's going to be filled with ease and leisure? Absolutely not. But 
you will have hope and you will know the living Savior. So let me briefly share with you four calls to action, and they're just simple sentences, so don't panic if you think we're in for another sermon here. It was shared with me many years ago. The first one is don't focus on the situation. Don't focus on the situation. Here is an excellent place to practice patience. The first command James shared with us. Be patient. Is it easy? No. Is it worth it? You bet. Secondly, don't focus on yourself. Think about that 50-20 vision we talked about. Stop seeing people as the enemy and come to understand that God can use people and circumstances to shape you to make you more like his son. Remember, you are in the hands of the master blacksmith, and he knows what he's doing. Fall back on those childhood verses. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 comes to mind, right? Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding in all your ways. And let's face it, that little word all, it's big. But in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your path. Third, don't focus on others. My wife and I, a while back, went to a marriage conference. And we had never been to a marriage conference. And I love how they kicked it off. I'm sitting beside my bride. And it was a big place. It had like 700 people there. I even saw people from NBC. And they're like, oh, are you here to speak? I'm like, no, I'm here to learn. <laughs> I want to learn how to be fluent in woman. And I'm still figuring this out. But as I was sitting beside my wife, one of the ladies that was speaking up there with her husband said, I want you all to do me a favor. I want you to take a giant yellow highlighter and I want you to draw it around your chair. And the reason she said that is she said, I want you to work on you this weekend. Don't be thinking about the person sitting beside you. I want you to work on you. For let's face it, isn't that the only heart that you can control anyway? That's where the work begins. Starts right here. Everything else is above our pay grade. Let God sort out everybody else. Lastly, don't focus on the present. Instead, shift your focus to eternity and things that will last forever. Patience is only possible when we focus on eternity. Romans 8.18 says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. <laughs> now, I've had some sweet people in the church come up to me and ask me this question more than once. They're like, Todd, have you ever had any trouble in your life? You seem so happy all the time. God bless those people. I answer usually only when I'm asleep and when I'm awake. The only times I have trouble. Some of you that are on our prayer warrior chain know that I've experienced trouble in the last two weeks. About a week and a half ago, I was meeting with people on Tuesday, and then I met with people on Wednesday, said goodbye to our grandson who's three months old. He's grinning at me. He's starting to coo, and he makes those cute little smiles that only three-month-olds can do. And then I got a call from my wife and said, we're on our way to the ER. Baby William's not doing well. He's having difficulty breathing. I was like, okay. And so I quickly wrapped up my last meetings for the day and my, made my way to the ER to be with my daughter. As I got there, I saw this little guy. He had been diagnosed with RSV and pneumonia. And he had both. And they quickly moved him to ICU in Fairfax to a, a much more serious situation and condition. And I will tell you, looking at that little boy being intubated, it broke my heart. One of the hardest things I've ever experienced to see that little boy 
struggling to breathe. When he was coughing, his little feet would kick up. And I was devastated. And yet I knew I needed to be strong for my wife, strong for my daughter, strong for my son-in-law, strong for this person, that person, strong for the church. But inside I was dying. It's a little grandson. I love that little boy. It's at times like that, if you're not careful, you start making bargains with God, don't you? Oh God, if you'll just do this. And it wasn't lost on me that I was preaching on this text as I was going through this either. I was like, my goodness, what a laboratory experience. Father God, save this little boy. And what's even harder is that Friday night, or on the way, our granddaughter going through leukemia was also admitted. So all her numbers crashed. She had 104 fever. She had RSV. And so I got a couple grandkids that are super sick and a lot of prayer going on in our homes. And I tell you what, I'm so thankful because as of Friday, they're both home. They're home and they're recovering. Are they still sick? You bet. But we're kind of out of that darkness, right? But the last week and a half have been rough. And I don't pretend to think that a lot of you could have had a pretty rough week too. In times of trouble, we need patience, don't we? But more importantly, we need our Savior. We need hope. And I'm so thankful that because we have a Savior that's alive, because He lives, trouble is only temporary. Because He lives, trouble will one day go away. Because He lives, one day there will be no more suffering. There'll be no more tears. There'll be no more disease. There'll be no more wrecked homes from selfish desires. There'll be no more. And instead, we'll have our Savior. And we will worship Him forever and ever. There'll be no more suffering. And so today, I want to invite you to pray with me and ask the Lord for courage because we desperately need patience in times of trouble. And if you're not going through trouble, I hate to break it to you, but one day you will. So let's go to the Lord now in prayer. <laughs> Heavenly Father, as we conclude our journey in James, we are deeply grateful for the wisdom you have imparted to us. Thank you for teaching us the value of patience, the strength found in enduring hardships, and the importance of integrity in our words and actions. And Father, we ask for your help in applying these lessons to our lives. May you grant us grace to be patient in our trials and to trust you in your perfect timing. And to find joy in the waiting. Help us to strengthen our hearts and faith, to resist the temptation to grumble against one another, and to be examples of your love and patience in our communities. Father God, as we go forth from this place, may the Holy Spirit continue to guide and lead us. May we embody the perseverance of the prophets and the steadfastness of Job in our own lives. And in all things, may our yes be yes and our no be no. And may we live with the integrity that honors you. We thank you for your unending faithfulness and love. In the name of Jesus Christ, our steadfast Savior, we pray. Amen.